Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, ruler of all things in heaven and earth, hear our prayers for this parish family. Strengthen the faithful, arouse the careless, restore the penitent. Grant us all things necessary for our common life and bring us all to be of one heart, mind within your holy church. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Page 817, Book of Common Prayer. 817, 817, Book of Common Prayer. So this morning, we're going to talk about the Holy Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word. Does anybody here speak Greek? What does it mean? A holy Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. The holy Thanksgiving. What page you been? Eight seventeen. Eight seventeen was the prayer I just read. I'm sorry. So eight seventeen is what we did before. Now we're doing that. Okay, uh, I'm going to be going through the Holy Eucharist. I will use, for the most part, right two, which begins on 355. He's just trying to keep you on your toes. Now, you're going to understand and appreciate the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer is the best of all worlds. I'm talking theological and liturgical worlds. Uh, I had a lot of doubt about the new prayer book back in the late 70s, but I've come to to appreciate its history as I learned a little more. The earliest Christians broke bread and they shared wine. We know that was true in the very early days of the first century. Shortly after Christ's Death and resurrection. In fact, he enacted, instituted is the word, the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper. Now, but we also have to take, there's a great book. um, And I just blocked the author's name. It's uh, the history of Christianity, the first 3,000 years. Okay, now think about that. The first Christian, uh, the history of Christianity, the first three thousand years. It's a great book. It's about five inches thick, uh, and it is uh, Derry Made McCullough is the author. Um, and basically, his premise is that you can't really separate early Christian history from the history of the children of Israel. And so he goes back in the history of Christianity a thousand years before Christ to, so that we have a continuous story of God's salvation. And you'll see some of that in the Eucharist as we go through it this morning. Immediately, what comes to mind is the Passover feast. Has anybody ever been to a, a Passover or a Seder meal? And you have... Symbolically, the Lamb of God with the Lamb. You have bread. You have uh, wine, the cup of uh, Elijah. That 
that was very much in the minds of these early Christians as they gathered, huddled together to celebrate the first Eucharist. It was not something that was uncommon to them. Jesus shared many meals with his disciples. He fed the multitude. And the disciples gathered after his death, after his betrayal. Before the end of the New Testament era, so we're talking about like 95, the year 95, uh, for most of the epistles and gospels to have been written. Before the end of the New Testament era, the rituals to celebrate the Holy Eucharist, the bread and the wine, were in place. Now, when you pick up this prayer book, you think, well, we're, we're we're Anglicans. This is English tradition. Not. Not at all English tradition. The English were just good at borrowing things. Taking Taking things. If it wasn't nailed down, they took it back to London. Um, And they took the best from the East, and they took the best from the West. Now, if you remember, as I was talking earlier when we talked about the prayer book, there were basically five churches in the early Christian world. Rome, which was probably the smallest, Constantinople, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch. Yes, yes indeed. Antioch, which, which, which is in Syria. So Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which was probably the largest and most prominent. Second would probably have been Constantinople. Jerusalem, which was relatively small. Antioch in Syria, and Rome. So, the English have borrowed from all of those five churches with a very, very heavy influence from the Eastern churches. That means non-Roman. So when you hear me talk about the Eastern churches, that could be the Greek Orthodox, it could be the Antiochian Orthodox, uh, it could be the Coptics. Um, So, we have eight Eucharistic prayers in this prayer book. And we don't use them all here at Church of Our Savior. Um, Right one, which we celebrated at 8 o'clock today, has two prayers. And they are largely uh, of Syrian origin, which means Antiochian, Antioch. Uh, Right two has four Eucharistic prayers. Again, they are a combination of Western, which means Roman, and Syrian. We have Eucharistic Prayer C, which we don't do here at Church of Our Savior, which is based on the Egyptian Holy Eucharist. And also, um, there is Form 1, which is found on page 403, which is not included in that count, which is also an Egyptian prayer. It's just mainly an outline, a short Eucharistic prayer. So you've got East and West pretty well represented in our liturgical worshiping style. So, there are two major parts to the Eucharist. 
There is the liturgy of the word. And there is the great thanksgiving. There's that word. Eucharist, thanksgiving, same thing. Now, the liturgy of the word can, can take on a bunch of different forms. Uh, we're all familiar with, you know, the form that we use in, in church most days uh, where Father Joe will come in and say, Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we respond, Blessed be His kingdom now and forever. And then we go into um, a couple of colics and lessons. That's how we traditionally worship. And that's true of rite one and rite two. But in the liturgy of the word, there are lots of options. One is you can use morning prayer in its place. We don't use morning prayer very much anymore. It is a beautiful service. Evening prayer, we can use that as the liturgy of the word. And then just slowly slip into the Eucharist at the end. We can also do baptisms. Ordinations. Confirmation. We can do the penitential order. We can do the Ten, um, the, 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 the ten Commandments. Um, the Decalogue. All of that can be the pro-Afra, the, 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 uh, the lead-up, the liturgy of the Word to the Eucharist itself. Any questions so far? Can you use the word preparation? Mm-hmm. Or the lead-up? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's, the, the question, can you use the word preparation um, for the lead-up? Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's preparation for receiving. The liturgy of the word is preparation for receiving the Eucharist and giving the great thanks to him. Okay, the first thing we begin with is the exhortation. And typically that would be found, um, if, if you jump over to right one, uh, on 316... Now, the exhortation can take on many different forms. Uh, It can be as simple as um, inviting people, welcoming them, or it can be something very formal. Uh, You'll see there on um, page 317, the Decalogue, which is a traditional way of beginning. It's, It's a style of exhortation where you actually go through and read the Ten Commandments. We have the penitential order, which comes next on page 319. Um, And again, it's just reminding us that we are indeed all sinners. And I particularly love the one Bible verse at the top of page 320 in the penitential order. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The sin of presumption. If we look at somebody else and we, we don't recognize our own sin. Um, but people sinned a whole lot more in the 1500s than they do today. <laughs> I'm glad you recognize that as a joke. Uh, so, really the first thing that we experience in everyday worship is the acclamation. 
Um, and there are three styles of acclimation, if I can get there. Um, I'm on page 323, which is right one. Um, it's also found in right two on page 355. Now this is an Eastern tradition. When I say Eastern, it's from the Orthodox churches in either Constantinople or Antioch. And uh, the three styles are blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you say... Amen. But we don't say that all year, do we? What do we do at Easter? Hallelujah, Christ is risen. And the Lord is risen indeed. Christos en este, Lithios en este. That's how the early Greeks, that's how the early Christians would have celebrated it. Uh, Christ is risen, Christ is surely risen or truly risen. But there is a, there is a third option. And it's often done in penitential situations. It's always done in, in Lent. And that is, bless the Lord who forgiveth all our sins. His mercy endures forever. Hmm? His mercy endureth forever. Yes. So, um, after the opening acclamation, which there are three styles, we do the colic of purity. And Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. This is largely based, now keep in mind, this is, this is an Eastern style tradition, and it is a summary, if you will, of the 51st Psalm. Create in me clean heart, O Lord. Restore a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. God, we call on a God who knows us in this collect of purity. Because there's no fooling him. He knows that we're a sinner. I'm, I'm speaking for myself, of course. But, um, about this place in the Lutheran hymnal is the psalm creating a our psalm. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the same spot. The interesting note is in the Lutheran uh, hymnal, uh, in their order of service, uh, the, the same thing is sung. And it it's, it's the psalm, not the, not the, the yeah. college, but it's, it's that same psalm. Yep. Right. Yep. The, the 51st psalm? Yeah. Well, Cramner, who was the principal author of the original prayer book, was sent by King Henry VIII to study under Luther and Melanchthon in Germany. And so it's, it's the, the seeds of, of Luther and Melanchthon are in our prayer book. Um, in right one, we begin with a with a summary of the law, uh, which is love. It's the same as the Shema in 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 Jewish faith. Oh, hear Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Uh, and we go on and do the synopsis of Jesus's answer to the young lawyer, where 
uh, they try to trick him uh, into saying which is the greatest commandment and his answer is love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself uh, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets um, again we're trying to we are as a prayer book people methodically trying to create in a congregation the sense, the correct theological sense of what God is doing in our midst. The next would come the Kyrie or the Gloria or the Trigion, and I probably butchered that. Um, on high holy days, celebrations, feasts, we would use the Gloria. Um, the rest of the time we would use the Kyrie, which is just Greek for Lord. Lord have mercy upon us. Christ have mercy upon us. Lord have mercy upon us. And then, and I'm on page 324 right now. And you could say it in either English or Greek. Uh, one of the beautiful um, Chrysio hymns, they actually sing the Kyrie in Greek. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. In penitential times, like Lent, we probably wouldn't use either, we definitely would not use the Gloria. We probably would not use the Kyrie, though Kyrie is often used. But there, the triagion is the one that is preferred here liturgically, and it goes, and it's repeated three times, Holy God, Holy and Mighty, Holy Immortal One, have mercy upon us is the response. Has anybody ever heard that before? It's falling out of favor. I personally prefer it, but um, anyway. The salutation, the Lord be with you, would precede the collet. This comes from the Bible. There we go. You know, the prayer book being plagiarized by the Bible again. Actually, they, they took that and they used it in the book of Ruth. It was the greeting of Boaz to the reapers in the field. The Lord be with you and also with you. They did not say, and with thy spirit. Next would come the colic, which would be a thematic prayer considering where we are in the liturgical calendar, whether it be Advent or Easter uh, or some special high holy day like uh, Trinity Sunday. Um, and this is an Egyptian tradition coming out of the Egyptian church. Fifth century. This is before Muhammad was even born. People were saying colics. After colics, we get into the lectionary. We get into the readings. 
And you can go anywhere in the world to an Episcopal church, to an Anglican church, to the Church of New Zealand, the Church of Canada, the Church of Australia, the Church of India. You can go and hear the same lessons read each Sunday. So when you come home, you can talk to Father Joe about what you heard. <laughs> um, one of my classmates has a... Um, um, she was raised up by a congregation in Hong Kong and was one of the first uh, women priests ordained into the Anglican Church in Hong Kong. And something that she wasn't aware of is that we all have the same lectionary. And when she got to seminary, that was just the most fantastic thing, that everybody worldwide was listening to the same Word of God every Sunday. Now the response to the Gospel reading, uh, or excuse me, the response to, to the readings would be, uh, the reader would say, the Word of God, or here endeth the Epistle, or, or whatever the tradition in the local. But the next response is, thanks be to God. Now this is a Roman tradition, out of the Roman Church, and it's Dio Gratis. Thanks be to God. We would then uh, have a response to the Old Testament reading. The first would be the Old Testament reading. The response to the Old Testament reading would almost always be a psalm, though it could be a canticle. But most often, a psalm. It's called the gradual. And then we would um, have a sequence, ninth century, where we would proceed into the Gospel reading. And the Gospel reading is done differently than the other readings. We stand for the Gospel reading. The deacon or the priest who's reading the Gospel will walk down amongst the people because it is supposed to have special significance. Emphasized importance. Next, uh, following the gospel, would be a sermon. Not. Typically, in an Anglican church, in the Episcopal church, when you come to church, you're not going to hear a sermon. It may say sermon in the bulletin. It may say sermon in the prayer book. But most likely, you're not going to get a sermon. You're going to get a homily. The difference is that the homily is specifically related to the lessons that you've just heard. And it's not going to be uh, sermonizing by and, and ad-libbing by a preacher who's going to choose his own topic. Father Joe and I don't get to choose that. Beth, when she preaches, we don't get to choose what we're going to preach on. So what we're doing is we are responding and emphasizing the Holy Scripture that you've just heard. And that probably sets us apart from most Western um, Protestants. <coughs> Not necessarily uh, Eastern or 
Roman or Lutheran, but most Protestants in, in the Western Hemisphere. And right after the sermon, or homily, we would have the Nicene Creed. And that's, uh, I think, was uh, the first three councils of the church, which were uh, Nicaea, where it was originally developed, the, the Council of Constantinople and the Council of Chalcedon, all ratified this as being the thing that would be used in the Eucharistic prayer. This would be the statement of faith that would be used. It also led to the Great Schism, 1100-ish, between the Eastern and Western churches. And it was all over one sentence that the Western church, and keep in mind that the richest country in Western Christendom was um, Spain because of its vast holdings in the New World. They brought tons and tons and tons and tons of gold and silver back to Spain, and Spain was the treasure house of Western Christendom. And they carried a lot of clout in Rome. And the Roman church lobbied heavily to have the filioque clause inserted in the Nicene Creed. And what I'm talking about is, I'm on page 327, I'm still in right one, it's virtually the same in right two. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Son is the filioque clause. Does the Holy Spirit truly descend, proceed from the Father and the Son, or just the Father? Remember last week we talked about Athanasius' Creed, which clearly said that the Holy Spirit comes from the Father. Um, anyway, that caused a big schism in the church. Several general conventions ago, the Episcopal Church voted, next time we, we write the Book of Common Prayer, we're going to take that filioque clause out and go back to the historic verbiage. Whether they do or not, there's still more conventions before a new prayer book. So they could change it again. We go then to the confession, which really gained importance in the Middle Ages. And the confession is really a scary thing to people in the time. Um, let me read to you. This is from the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England. And it starts out, <clears throat> it's three pages long, so I'm not going to read it all to you. So it starts out, Dearly Beloved, that's a good start. Uh, I propose, through God's assistance, to administer to all, as such, be religiously and devoutly disposed, the most comfortable sacrament of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so on and so on. And it goes on talking about um, some really great wording. Um, which being so divine and comfortable a thing to them who receive it worthily, 
and so dangerous to them who will presume to receive it unworthily. My duty is to exhort you in this mean season to consider the dignity of that holy mystery and the great peril of unworthy receiving thereof. And goes on to say, um, Therefore, if any of you be a blasphemer of God, a hinderer or a slanderer of His word, an adulterer, or be in malice or envy, or any such grievous crime, repent you of your sins, or else come not to the holy table, lest after taking of the holy sacrament, the devil enter into you as he did into Judas, and fill you full of iniquity, and bring you to destruction both of body and soul. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that was only part of it. So, so today... Uh, we say, yes. That makes you take it a little more serious, a lot more serious, what you get ready to do. Yes, indeed, it does. That was the that was the purpose. The comment was that makes you really keep in mind what you're about to do. Now today we say, let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. That's the short version. Doesn't quite do it. But in right one, we have even a different invitation. And it's ye who do earnestly, who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbor and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God. Walking from henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith and make your humble confession to Almighty God devoutly kneeling. So, we go from three pages to a short paragraph to a sentence. Um, again, it, remembering from previous weeks, we believe that the Eucharist is the true body and blood of Christ when it is rightly received by a contrite heart. Not just, and if you're not, if you haven't prepared your heart, all you're getting is bread and wine. But don't let the devil enter you, as he did Judas. Anyway. Um, is that transubstantiation? Transubstantiation is the Roman belief that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ when they're blessed by the priest. Regardless of the recipient. Regardless of the The Anglican church... Um, believes that it only becomes the body and blood of Jesus when it is rightly received. That being the big difference. Okay. Um, any questions at this point? Yes. I'm curious to know, of these things you've been teaching us, how much were you taught in seminary, and how much is a result of subsequent study after seminary? Yes. <laughs> the question was how, how much of what I know was taught in seminary and how much has been learned after the fact. Uh, I had the great honor of having as my liturgy professor uh, the retired presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Frank Griswold, who before he was presiding bishop was bishop of Chicago. And... Uh, 
Wow, I could sit and listen to him for hours and hours and hours. And uh, most of this I learned from him. I then put what I'd heard together after I was ordained and say, oh yeah, that's what he meant. Uh, so it's been a process both of sitting at his feet and learning and then putting it together in my own experience. Well, we're blessed. Well, thank you. Okay, the prayers for the people. Um, the prayers for the people, anybody want to guess where that comes from? Which church? Eastern churches. Constantinople, Antioch. Um, the Roman church had what were called biddings, which were just kind of like a litany. Um, but the English church wanted to do something more. And there are all kinds of prayers for the people. And if you'll turn over with me to page 383. I'll tell you a little story. The prayers for the people forms one through, what is it, six? Through six? Um were never intended to be used in our liturgical worship. They were to be examples. The outline that is at the top of page 383, prayers for the people will include the universal church, its members, and its mission, the nation and all its authority, the welfare of the world, the concerns of the local community, those who suffer and those in any trouble, and the departed. What was envisioned was that each church would create its own prayers for the people. We've seen that occasionally. There was a, a prayers for the, that the children had written. Uh, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. It's going to be Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, <laughs> just a foretaste. <laughs> but that was the intent, you know, to, to have like the children do a prayer, using that as an outline, have the daughters of the king do a prayers, uh, the sons of our Savior do a set of prayers, and to have that fresh and new as part of our worship. Um, and right one, there's a beautiful old prayer that we don't say here at Church of Our Savior, but it's called the prayer for the whole state of Christ's church and the world, uh, which is the historical way that the church in the United States and in the United Kingdom have accomplished the prayers of the people. I would encourage you to go read it. It's absolutely beautiful. It used to be the prayers of the whole state of Christ Church militant and the world. Now that didn't mean soldiers. That meant that they were marshaled and ready as, as, uh, as Christian soldiers which is a hymn that's fallen out of grace. Okay, uh, let's see. Yes? They have on the departed. I thought under those 39 articles it said that the, that the departed belong to God and there aren't really such as set-aside saints. No, uh, you're, you're exactly right. The, the question is, in the 39 articles, uh, it, it says that those who are departed are with God. And that's absolutely true. But we still pray for them because 
from a theological point of view and a liturgical point of view, we want to be constantly reminded that as, as Christ was raised to new life in God's kingdom, so too will we be raised to that new life. So you're not venerating, you know, like people will say, no. especially in, in Central and South America, are you Christian or are you Catholic? Because they think you're praying to Mary as venerating her. No. Okay, it's a remembrance. It's a remembrance. Okay, need to repeat it the, the question was, are we praying as a remembrance? Yes. Uh, we're not venerating the dead. Okay. Uh, yes. The Church of Antioch is an Eastern Orthodox type. That's the one Paul visited. Was that the first Christian church? That was where they were first called Christians. Antioch, in Antioch, yes. The question was, is the Antioch, Antiochian church uh, a uh, Orthodox? Yes, it is. Uh, one of the, the original five. Okay. Uh, the peace. The peace was really controversial. Uh, it was a new concept. Uh, that was brought into the English church, in uh, I mean to the American church, through the 1979 prayer book, and um, it was thought everybody thought it was going to be disruptive. The, you know we were going to lose control of the worship. Everybody get carried away, uh, and and it's okay if you get carried away in the Holy Spirit. And that turned out not to be true. All the fears were proven not to be true. Uh, and it gave a good transition from the liturgy of the word to um, to the Eucharist, to the to the great Thanksgiving, and we borrowed it not from the East, not from Rome, but we brought we brought it into our liturgy from the diocese of South India. So these guys and, and gals that got together to write this prayer book really had had it going on. I mean, they, they looked for the best liturgy that represented what we believe. The uh, preparation of the table is either done by a, a deacon or a priest. And uh, then we begin the actual Eucharistic prayer. And it starts with what is called the Sursum Corda, which we... Lift up our hearts. We lay aside the cares and we lift up our hearts. We set aside our cares and we lift up our hearts. We give thanks. It's very much a Roman concept. It came from the Roman church. Um, we would then have the Sanctus, Holy, 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 which is also very Roman. Uh, I have about five minutes and I've got a whole Eucharistic prayer to do. Okay. Uh, we would do a couple things. Uh, I, I'll, I'll make this quick. Uh, there is an institutional narrative in all the Eucharistic prayers that recognize that the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist was instituted by Christ himself. And we have a memorial acclamation in every Eucharistic prayer 
that reminds us why we're doing it. Now, it's more an Eastern idea, but it was present in some Western churches. Everybody knows what the word amnesia means, right? Well, there, let me give you a new word. Adamnesis. Adamnesis, which is a Greek word very much related to amnesia. And it means to remember. The opposite of amnesia. And we are remembering His, Jesus' sacrifice, His death and resurrection. And that's found in every Eucharistic prayer regardless of the style in our prayer book. Now, there's also what is called an oblation, where we remember, again, it's a continuation of this remembering. And it was first really liturgically developed by a, uh, a priest and later bishop by the name of Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus was bishop of Lyon. He would have been a bishop in the year... 202. Um, so we're two centuries into this new millennia, and 170 years after Christ's death, Irenaeus um, brought the oblation forward. What does oblation mean? Uh, it's remembering his death, resurrection, and ascension. And it's present in all the versions. The next thing that happens in the Eucharistic prayer is called the epiclesis. Again, all these Greek words. Um, and it is an Eastern and an Egyptian idea. It's not so much found in the Roman church. But it basically is the invocation of the Holy Spirit. And if you're, if, you're, if you're looking up and happen to see any of us at the altar, typically when we invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, you'll see us make the sign of the cross. Um, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm moving quickly because I'm down to, what, two or three minutes? Um, became part of the Eucharistic feast about the year 400. Uh, the breaking of the bread or fraction... Uh, which isn't emphasized here uh, so much at Church of Our Savior. In a high church environment like downtown at the cathedral, it might be, uh, you know, you might see the priest raise mm -hmm. the priest hosts and, and break it and say, Hallelujah, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Um, that's pretty much high church. But uh, you will see Father Joe, or you'll see me, we'll take and break the bread, uh, but we won't necessarily say those words. But it's the same the breaking of the bread, which Christ did. Um, we have the prayer of humble access. I said that none of these ideas in this liturgy were from England. Well, this one is. The, the, the Brits can claim this prayer of humble, humble access, uh, which is just a beautiful prayer. Uh, and we're using it in both Rite 1 and Rite 2 during this season of Advent. You'll see the priest hold up the gifts. Deacon sometimes, other priests will hold up the gifts. Uh, and the priest 
the celebrant will say, the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on Him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Where do you think that came from? East or west? East would be a good bet. And that would be correct. Um, Post-communion prayer, Egyptian, to pray Thanksgiving after receiving the Eucharist, the blessing, peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the blessing of God Almighty, and so on. Egyptian, in origin. Egyptian what? Egyptian, in origin. Okay. And the dismissal. And then we're out of time. Dick and Beth, <laughs> would, you, would you do a dismissal for us? And if you were guessing, would you say that came from the Western Church or from the Eastern Church? Eastern. From the East. My wife is Greek, and she, all Greeks, when there's not a Greek Orthodox Church, typically they will go to the Episcopal Church because our liturgy is so largely based on theirs and their traditions. Thank you, Deacon Beth.